Before we start, just a quick reminder that your donations keep this podcast going. If the episodes are helpful to you, please take a second and jump to the show notes where there's a link to donate and let us know if we can thank you on the air. Hi, I'm Kimberly Fleming. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Carrie Goldberg has been a supporter of our work in moral injury for years. She's a journalist who's covered healthcare and science in the Boston area for 20 years, at the Boston Globe for a decade as the on-air and online host of WBUR's Common Health section, and most recently as the Boston bureau chief for Bloomberg News. She's also been the Boston bureau chief of the New York Times, a staff Moscow correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, and a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT after graduating from Yale. She has a keen ear for important stories that need broader attention. So when I met up with her last winter and she was head down, furiously finishing a book, I knew we had to talk with her about it. Isaac Kohani, a co-author of the book, is chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics and the Marion V. Nelson Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. He is also an associate professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. It was due to a series of unfortunate events that, unfortunately, I was unable to join the podcast discussion live, but I've had a chance to listen to the episode, and I know it will definitely spark some conversation. Zach Kohane and Carrie Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about AI. Glad to be here. Very happy to be here. So, Carrie... I got interested in this when you and I had lunch nearly a year ago, not quite a year ago, maybe nine months ago. It was in the winter. You were thick in the middle of writing this book. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember this sense of urgency that I have never seen in you before. And it was fascinating. And so could, could each of you tell me sort of what prompted you to write this book and what that sense of urgency was? So I would say my sense of urgency came from Zach. So Zach has been sort of my favorite medical, biomedical, uh, life science expert for more than 20 years. And I trust him in a way that I trust very few experts. And he called me up one morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, just beside himself, saying, I have tried this thing and I can't believe it. And it is just incredible. This is a new phase of the human condition. And I immediately caught his enthusiasm because I trusted him so much. And so he should tell you why he was so excited. That's amazing. So Zach, what was the urgency? The urgency came from a life perspective. This was take two. Take one was I did a PhD in computer science in the middle of medical school in artificial intelligence in the 1980s. And then everything went to crap. Uh, all, our, all the prognostication, all the expectations ended up being overwrought and incorrect and AI winter happened. So when I got a phone call from Peter Lee, head of Microsoft Research, who Himself, before he was head of Microsoft Research and senior vice president at Microsoft, he himself had been a computer scientist, academic computer scientist and department chair. And so he had sent me a mysterious email saying he could not tell me what he wanted to talk to me about, but 
it'd be worth my while to hear about it. And so when he spoke with me, he revealed GPT-4. This, mind you, was right before G- ChatGPT had been released to the public. And ChatGPT was actually GPT-3.5, a much less powerful um, model. But I had seen neither 3.5 nor 4. And when he first introduced it to me, he had gave some examples, which he read off. And I have to say, I was impressed. But then I was given access to it. And I started using it. So it was not... PR, it was direct experience. And I realized that I was working with something, however flawed, that in many occasions was acting diagnostically and therapeutically in ways that actually very few doctors could. And at that point, I really, A, felt that this was take two, that really the, all the excitement I'd had as a young man about artificial intelligence medicine now was actually going to happen. And not only that, but because it had been released not just to doctors, but to the broader public, everyone was going to be exposed to its potential across human uh, questions, but in medicine as well. And I was just excited. And frankly... I had no ambitions to write a book. Peter Lee had ambitions to write a book, and I tried to dissuade him. I said, you're busier than I am. I'm also a department chair now, and you're more busy than department chair. There's no way you you want to do this. And he kept ignoring me, and we kept on having conversations, and I I kept getting more excited. So finally I said, fine. If you want to do it, I have only one condition. We've got to get a professional involved. Let's get Carrie. And probably that was the most important thing I ever did for Peter Lee, uh, to introduce him to to, uh, Carrie. And uh, I think it's important for everybody to realize that there is know-how and expertise in repertorial writing that I don't think is fully appreciated. And it's, it's, it's a superpower that I think reporters themselves don't fully appreciate. You know, Carrie is, uh, as many smart people, is very modest. And, you know, she says to me, I don't know what I've contributed. I said, science without communication has no impact. Yeah. It's what I tell my students and my, my postdocs. I really insist on this. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're waiting for the, George, uh, for the, uh, the Gregor Mendel uh, discovery of an ancient manuscript in the library before someone uh, discovers your science. Yeah, so what, what I think is amazing, and experts in every field forgets, is that we take our skill sets for granted. Exactly. And so I'm constantly telling physicians, lean on the writers. You know, bring writers into the circle. Bring lawyers into the circle. Bring policymakers into the circle because they have exquisite expertise that we don't have. And you're absolutely right that if we don't communicate it, it will just sit with us. And, and in this case, Wendy, I would add that 
everyone has access to these tools. And so it's really important for everyone to be able to get good information about exactly how they work and what they can and cannot do. And even if it's going to be quite a while until hospitals and medical practices are openly adopting them, you know that quite a few people are just quietly tapping into ChatGPT or BARD or other large language models as we speak. And so getting out the word about what we figured out so far about what their strengths and weaknesses are is very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. There you have it. That's how, <laughs> so that's how um, I ended up uh, calling uh, Carrie because I was excited. Uh, I felt that Peter, Par- Peter Lee was right. We needed to write the book, but we needed our colleague. Yeah. And what, one more note about urgency is, you know, those of us who are not machine learning experts kind of have to take the word of the people who are. And Peter Lee and many other top experts that I spoke with for the book were telling me that they were having physiological symptoms. They were having trouble sleeping. They were having, wow. um, yeah, they were having accelerated heart rates. They were having, you know, blood pressure problems. And I think that more than anything persuaded me that like this was shocking. Like several of them told me I never expected to see this in my lifetime. And so that made me realize this is a really significant change in the human condition and we really need to get the word out. And what's fascinating is that this uh, incredulity was very widespread at the highest levels. So after the fact, back in, I think, November or December, I spoke with uh, Bill Gates and so he's quite aware of what's going on with large language models. And some of his uh, programming staff had predicted to him that GPT-4 would have this um, capability. And he was publicly skeptical. Mm, interesting. And, and then when he just started interviewing it with uh, AP level biology questions and it was just killing it, he realized it was far outperforming what he couldn't say. And I think it actually reflects an interesting uh, conceit. Because we value ourselves by our linguistic and sort of intellectual excellence, there is a set of tasks that we think are uniquely ours and uniquely uh, defining of our standing. And it may not be the case that um, it is that unique that there are characteristics. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm curious about how, if, if you could explain, just for those of us who aren't as deep into this and, and haven't done a computer science degree, could you tell me in like three sentences how large language models work? Sure. So first of all, the honest thing to say is even today, most computer scientists will be able to give an explanation, as I am about to do, of how it works. But then when they interact with it, they find Mm. their explanation inadequate. Um, And so here goes. So this has been trained on all the human language that OpenAI could get its hands on. We don't know what that is. It's all books, all the web, in multiplicity of languages. And at its heart, what it's doing is saying, given the words uttered so far, hello, my name is, what's the next likely word to be said? 
And the more words you give it, the more precise it will get. And that's it. And yet somehow that is creating enough capability so I can have a full-on conversation about politics, about sports, about Talmudic uh, studies, and about medicine. Now, in its raw form, it will make such sentences, but many of those sentences, although correct, are, will be uninteresting. And so then there's a second process that's done, and it's called alignment or steering. And what you do is you tell, you create an additional model on top of this um, large neural network. And this model, also called reinforcement learning through human feedback, says here are examples of prompts and here's examples of the kind of responses we would like to see. And initially it has that, then it starts generating responses in the shape that you suggested and you rate them from 10 to one. And in fact, they had dozens, maybe over a hundred people, I think in someplace in Africa, Kenya or Rwanda, actually doing that alignment. And so this has a number of consequences. A, these large language models now pick the sentences among all the sentences they could generate that are more interesting to human beings. They're also picking sentences that are, from the perspective of OpenAI, frankly, more politically correct. Um, I have teenagers who are imps, and so they will, uh, boys, my, my, daughter, <laughs> my daughter would not try this, but my boys uh, would. And so they asked uh, GPT to do an ode to President Biden. They did it. They asked an ode for President Trump. It would not do it. <laughs> and and um, because it's been aligned. Yeah. Aligned to Bay Area people. <laughs> yeah. And, or, you know, you know, Sam Altman knew he was going to be before Congress um, at some point, And uh, it is what it is. Um, it also is aligned so that if you say, I want to commit suicide, it will not tell mm -hmm. you the recipe for a painless suicide. Mm -hmm. And so on. So, yeah, so it's, it's a way of imbuing both values and steering it to, to um, expressions that are of human interest. Because it turns out the Y word of language includes perfectly legitimate sentences of no interest to us. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting when you bring it into medicine to think that it is, number one, generating the language kind of on its own. It's on its own thread, but then it, it has an overlay of human input. And so that becomes very important as you start talking about diagnosis and treatment and, and all of these things. But as I was reading the book, I was thinking, I sort of see that there are three different levels where, and, and you know, since I've read the book, I've been paying attention more to what's in the news. And I'm hearing about AI in places that help clinicians, that help patients, and then that help on the administrative side of medicine. And I'd really love to go through those a little bit. So if we talk about the clinicians, and, and actually maybe, you know, maybe it makes more sense to start with the patients, right? Since they're the ones who are going to be coming in and 
I think one of the challenges of medicine and healthcare as a whole right now is it is so complex. Our technology and our understanding has developed so quickly that for patients to have health literacy, it's on an entirely different level than it used to be. And it makes me excited for what AI might be able to provide to patients. I want to let Carrie respond to that, but I just want to add one more editorial uh, framing, which is all this in the context of the disappearing primary care doctor. Yes. And as we get an older population, at the same time, we're having a decreased work supply workforce of primary care doctors. So however poorly or well they are dealing with the complexity of medicine, they are less and less and less available to patients. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, so the patient experience tends to be my my territory in, in the book. And it is uh, certainly true that all of us, even those of us who are not low income, are having major access problems Absolutely. right now, right? Like there just aren't enough primary care physicians or other, I mean, you wait weeks and weeks for a specialist appointment. So the possibility of at least being able to consult with GPT-4 or BARD or some other generative AI is very appealing, even though we know, and this was probably the central point of the book, that we cannot trust these AI models, right? So so it's kind of a funny ambiguity that, like, on the one hand, you we now have these generative AI models that will talk with you forever, right? Like, you can get <laughs> online with them right? and you can ask them as many questions as you want compared to your doctor who only has 15 minutes for you. But you can't ever truly trust yeah. what they say. You have to only think of what they say as sort of a launch, a launching or a jumping off point for then doing very extensive fact checking before you ever consider ever basing any action on something that an AI tells you. So, so that's a, that's a, a kind of a funny situation. There's a more clear situation, which is that for the people who really have no access, for the people in underdeveloped countries or in deep poverty, in fact, you know, an AI that might sometimes have questionable accuracy is way, way better than nothing, right? So you can see how there's actually kind of a moral imperative to try to spread medical uses of GPT-4 and other AIs to places like remote rural villages in underdeveloped countries where they don't have a doctor, but they have a cell phone, right? So, so, uh, so there are all kinds of patient possibilities. And, I, I, and one other that I'd like to mention is, yes, the sort of indecipherable explanation of benefits that even people <laughs> with PhDs cannot yeah. understand, right? Oh, so boy. you get explanation of benefits, you get summaries of visits, and again, the, the sort of beautiful in, interactivity of the generative AI is that you can say, look, here's what I just got from my doctor. What does it mean? And the AI will tell you in a few simple, comprehensible sentences what you were supposed to understand. And then taking it one step further, say you're a patient who doesn't have great English, who's being discharged from the hospital. You can get all of your discharge instructions in any language you want and keep getting them until you can understand what they really mean. So again, there's potential for patient benefit that is, is really game-changing, I think. One of the applications that I saw recently was an organization that is using AI 
to explain patient results because patient results are being released immediately now. Yeah. And so it's terrifying patients. It's mm-hmm. overloading inboxes. Everybody is unhappy. Everybody's anxious. And, and, and I'm saying that meaning everybody on both sides of that equation. The physicians feel terrible that they can't get to their patients before they open their inbox, mm-hmm. but they can't do it if it's not instantaneous. And so this organization is using it to explain those test results. And, you know, it, it seems to me like that might be one of the safer applications for immediately putting AI into the patient-clinician relationship. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic use case. And my understanding, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, that like the the hallucinations, which is what people call the, the inaccuracies or yeah. falsehoods that the AIs come up with, those mainly happen when the AI doesn't know the answer. But if, for example, you give it a chunk of text and you say, what does it mean? Then its interpretation is not necessarily wrong, right? Like it, I've seen it be very good at that. Uh, yeah in extensive usages, even by um, publications that report on errors. Um, Overwhelmingly, in that context, it's highly accurate. And I do have to say, I'm always mindful of asking where are we with respect to the actual practice of medicine today? And I want to remind us that today, because of the gap between what patients need and what doctors give them, we have another doctor, Dr. Google. And Dr. Google is used extensively. And if you look at it the way it's used right now, the first, second, third, and fourth link or more it gives you are to advertise sponsors which may not be relevant and sometimes misleading. And so, you know, yes, the hallucination issue, the accuracy issue with GPT is, is real, but perhaps relative to Dr. Google, it's okay. I, I think... You and I know what that what that link is between Dr. Google and accuracy, but I worry because AI can appear to be so confident in what it's telling you that it will come across in language that is sophisticated, that is mirroring of what medical language sounds like, and that patients will believe that, whereas with Dr. Google, they might not always. There might be other flags that they can pick up on. I mean, I've I've actually had people send me AI explanations of what I do and said, hey, this is pretty good. I'm like, well, the first two sentences are okay. And then it really falls apart. And I worry that if, if somebody is looking for a diagnosis because they can't get a primary care doctor and we've decided to rely on AI instead of PCPs, uh, that worries me. So uh, first yeah. of all, let's be clear. Certainly no one who wrote the book is saying, right. is saying <laughs> AI, AI rather than the PCPs. Right. We're saying either the PCPs plus AI, a physician assistant plus AI, a nurse practitioner plus AI is a lot better than the three of them unassisted. Um, and so, because a doctor will forget something about your history. A doctor will forget about a particular guideline. A, a doctor will forget that you uh, had asked the previous visit about your uh, lipid uh, uh, profile. And so the combination of what we do well as human beings and the hypervigilance and relatively, relative uh, comprehensiveness of its knowledge is particularly uh, compelling. So it's about complementarity. And just to jump ahead, paradoxically, it's where doctors, where doctors 
think they're the smartest, it actually does much better than doctors. I'm involved in something called the Undiagnosed Disease Network. I, I'm uh, the mm-hmm. principal investigator of the Coordinating Center. And we've been running GPT-4 against the referral letters, not the diagnosis. And GPT is coming up with all the rare diagnoses that we considered and that among which were the diagnoses because these so-called zebras, these rare things, mm-hmm. are what doctors actually have trouble doing. And so it's, the, it's a nice complementarity that I think is the, the model that we're looking at. Even to the point that as a patient, if I had any serious medical issue, I would be uncomfortable with my physician not using AI. And people have been saying, well, what's going to happen when there's the first legal case of someone who used AI and there was a misdiagnosis or some other medical error? And I say, well, what's going to happen in the first case where there was a misdiagnosis or a medical error because the physician did not use AI, right? Like, there, it's it's such a powerful tool that I think actually you're the expert on morality, Wendy. Like, I think there might be sort of a moral imperative to use a tool like that if you have one. This reminds me of the conversation that we had with an expert, a historian, a medical historian, who talked about the new technologies that were coming into medicine as they came in. And it was the specific case of the first time a physician was sued for not using a telephone. (laughs) It's a great analogy. But, I mean, let's turn it around, Wendy. What do you think? I mean, is there a moral imperative for physicians at this point to at least experiment with generative AI? I think we, we owe it to our patients. We owe it to medical advancement to be exploring the possibilities of AI. But I also think we owe it to the field and to our patients to be aware of its limitations. And I worry about asking physicians to be an expert in one more thing, meaning understanding how AI works and how it may go awry. Well, Wendy, except we're asking doctors to understand so many things all the time, and we never previously have put that as a... um, as a gating function, we, we say, oh, you have to understand genetics and the meaning of a, bra- of a BRCA mutation. Ha! And yet we, we, we allow, allow doctors to recommend breast removal and or not with very, very limited understanding of the meaning of genetics. And yet huge uh, financial pressures. We have uh, uh, growth hormone tests, which leads to tens of thousands of dollars and uh, daily injections for some children based on very incomplete and partial understanding of the underlying biology. And yet, we're, we're off to the race. Yeah, so uh, what, I, what I'm wondering is if you could prioritize where you think it's safe to use AI tomorrow in medicine that could offload physicians' workload. And what I'm thinking is you know, could we use it for prior authorization and have AI doing all the prior authorizations? Are there ways that we can optimize the administrative or operational functioning of a healthcare center or of a healthcare organization that offloads physicians enough to give them more patient time, if that makes sense? It, it makes sense, but there's a big caveat at the end of it. Yep. So first of all, Yes, if I were 
which I'm not, starting a company, an AI and health company, I would look for low risk, high yield applications. And what are those? On the administrative side, but not doctor administrative side, there are these giants, the insurers and the healthcare systems, which are playing information wars with each other about yeah. how to upcode, downcode, fulfill a uh, or reimburse a bill or make a bill. And they employ literally thousands of healthcare professionals previously to review uh, cases. Replacing those uh, human beings for the r- rightly or wrongly with AIs is low risk. Worst case that happens is they're going to get, I mean, this is not particularly um, empathetic, but worst case, they're going to be, they're going to say, oh, that bill was wrong. You should have paid for that. But no one theoretically uh, would be harmed. Uh, so that's one big use. And the other is exactly right in uh, making doctors, healthcare professionals' lives better, which, by the way, sadly, through the use of, of technology, we have made it much, much worse. I'm not going to tell your, uh, your listeners anything new to say that electronic health records have been among the most significant contributors to clinician burnout. And so, yes, if we could have, as we have the technology today, the ability to listen in to a conversation and automatically generate a note that is informed both by the prior visits and by the content of the conversation, and then let the clinician just do a little bit of uh, editing, that'd be a huge uh, time saver compared to how much time they're spending after work in their pajamas completing their clinical documentation. The big caveat is, why do we think the hospital administrators will not say, oh, you have now so much more free time. Could you please see 50% more patients? I have no, I I don't understand how that's not going to be true. And I also, having seen some of the generated definitions, for example, of, of the work that I do, and seeing that it's quite nuanced, like the, the errors in it are quite nuanced. And so making the, I think, I think it's going to be hard to make the argument, for physicians to make the argument that they need as much time as they do to go carefully through those reports that are being generated. It may take almost as much time to edit them as it would to create a new one, at least initially. Maybe, but I don't think so. Like what what we've seen in terms of using AI to write emails, for example, that are just kind of a pain in the butt, like they would take you 15 minutes and you ask GPT-4 to do it and it takes 30 seconds and then you read it over in 30 seconds and then you're done. Yeah, and and that may be, those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Those are exactly the kinds of things. Those administrative things where I I could spend 15 minutes explaining your lab results to you or ChatGBT could pull the meaning of those right off of a definition that we've all agreed to and put it in the email for me. Those are exactly the use cases. But for example, if there's a history of the present illness, the past medical social history that we went through and the physical exam that said out loud and then we come to some uh, summary and conclusion. If GPT just does a great job on the first parts and gets the conclusions a little bit wrong, you can fiddle with that and you've been saved a lot of time in just the, the word uh, effort of the first part of the note. But there is another aspect, which is there's another way that doctors save a lot of time, which is literally 
cut and paste. We have found in electronic health records enormous amounts of content-free um, clinical notes, which are Correct. literally just cut and paste. And so, you know, again, this is my recurrent theme. What are we competing against? What is the current baseline? And so if you actually have a, an agent that's taking our actual words with our patients and putting them in context, it may or may not be uh, as nuanced as we could like. We should be looking over it, but I would bet it's actually more, on average, more expressive and more detailed than the average uh, note. I just hope that my doctor is talking to me and not to the AI in the room, because that's what I could see happening. Absolutely correct. That is a very big mm -hmm. risk. But right now, that's already happening, which is the doctor is not only is, is actually talking to their computer. Uh, I understand. Um, I understand. But I'm saying if we're looking to make an improvement, I'm not looking at comparing it to the worst case right now. I'm looking at, let's look at the archetypes and what they're doing. And let's make a system that helps us do that. From the patient point of view, I actually find it quite appealing to imagine I'm sitting in my doctor's office, the AI is ambient, right? Like it's listening to what we're doing and it's there, it can talk to. The, the doctor says to me, okay, I've, I've examined all of your symptoms and I've looked at your test results and it seems to me that you have the diagnosis XYZ, which means you should do ABC, and then says, uh, GPT-4, what do you think? Have I missed anything? And I can say, GPT-4, what do you think about that? Is Do you really think that that's the likeliest diagnosis and that this is the correct prescription? And so you you have, this is what Zach calls symbiotic medicine, I suppose, or, or we talk about it becoming, instead of the dyad, it's a triad, right? Like it's now the physician or any other medical professional, the patient and the intelligence of the AI. Wouldn't that be in fact optimizing the outcome if uh, i mean i hope if we can if we can trust that we're not in the middle of a hallucination <laughs> well that's what the humans there for right like so let, let's yeah. say let's say um that's absolutely right so let's say we're, i'm the doctor and i say uh carrie um and yes uh based on your lipids uh we should probably think about uh, statins. And I say, you know, GPT-4, what, what else do you think I should do? Um, well, I think uh, by the standard rules, uh, we should have a, a GYN visit. I'll say, uh, why? And Carrie will say, why? And it'll give some reason, I'll be wrong. And we'll say, thanks, but no thanks. But if it says, for example, something that makes sense, and it says, you know, um, you mentioned something about your family history, um, we might actually want to get a genetic test. And I'll say, let me think about that. And Carrie say, why do you think, GPT, why do you think I need a genetic test? And it couldn't give an explanation. And at that point, um, I think it's a sociological question for the doctors. You know, we are taught that we must be much more partners with our patients than the typical previous authoritarian system. And the attitude should not be that every word I say is God's truth. 
and that when a patient asks a question, I take it seriously. And I think that GPT actually enlarges that question uh, space and has a discussion, which I think some doctors might be uncomfortable with, but I think it's incredibly valuable. Let me be tangential as earned by my gray hair and tell you that when I was in training, after every endocrine clinic visit, we'd all get together in a conference room and review every single case. And there was not one such post-clinic conference where we did not have a couple of suggestions from someone in the room that caused us to call up the patient and say, you know what, I forgot to do this, I should do that. And that function has gone because we can't afford it anymore. And I think having a second set of eyes, thoughts, ears, however imperfect, at least gets the, the, the process going on in both the patient and the doctor of not assuming that just because they said it in absolute confidence, with, in, with full confidence, that it is actually the right word. So, yeah, I think um, my, my only other concern is that um, at some point, Chet, GPT will, or, you know, whatever, whatever the new iteration of it is, <laughs> um, if those recommendations are captured, which no doubt they will be at some point, and if you don't follow those because you and the patient together decide that it's not the appropriate path to take, it might be the cause for denying disability insurance, long-term care insurance, those sorts of things, if it gets somehow captured in the record. That is true. There are all sorts of disclosures which might not otherwise make it into the record, which will be made in the record. We have to ask ourselves, is our regulatory uh, framework uh, robust enough to know? I don't think that's a problem so much with AI. It's a problem with our regulatory framework. Can we have conversations? Um, and does, do, does, is every part of that conversation discoverable? And if it's all discoverable, um, is what was decided with the patient, both explicitly, the standard of care, or do we um, arrogate to some other authority the ability to deny care? Those are regulatory issues. Right, but yeah, turning it back on you again, Wendy, I mean, you've written so eloquently about the potentially insidious influence of money on medicine. What, What would you hope to see in terms of how do we protect ourselves from finding that, in fact, we are denied coverage or denied access because of AI assessments, right? I think this is a, I absolutely think that this is one of those places where we need to have everybody in the room having the conversation and deciding that that we can't allow a sense that we can't afford to have these longer conversations between a patient and a physician, that because we can't, quote-unquote, afford that, that we must move to technology to solve that problem. Maybe we do. Maybe we all think we should. But maybe not. And maybe if we do largely move to technology as the solution, there are ways to opt out of that, if you choose. I want to point out something that's pretty fundamental, which is when we see our doctor, we assume that there is one set of utilities, one set of outcomes that trump all others, and that is the patient's utilities. Now, under a fee-for-service system, is that actually true? 
Well, is if, if your doctor recommends you get a scoping, if the doctor recommends uh, the mammogram, if the doctor is, uh, recommends the following uh, genetic test, if the doctor recommends the following cancer drug, how confident are we that, as Atul Gawande has shown, not small numbers, but huge numbers of doctors are ordering things that actually are not maximizing patients at utilities, but are maximizing doctors and healthcare systems and RVU per week utilities. And in that context, what is the possible gain in utility of having GPT say, oh, Carrie, um, I'm glad you asked. Uh, well, um, you just had a mammogram six months ago. We don't need to have a second mammogram this year. Oh, uh, Carrie, um, you have no family history of uh, this kind of cancer. I don't think we need to, and let the doctor disagree. I think there's a, a lot of commission. You're, you know, Wendy, you're appropriately thinking about denial of care. I think just important medicine is uh, errors of commission. I, I, um, <laughs> I do not not think about those things. I think about those things all the time because I do think that we are getting to a point where it's difficult walking into, you know, I experienced this 15 years ago walking to a veterinarian's office and saying, does my pet really need this? Or, or is there something else going on here? Well, I, I'm feeling like more and more people are coming to me saying that's the way they feel when they walk into their doctor's office. Mm. Is this really good for me? Is it good for their pocketbook? Is it good for my hospital's pocketbook? You know, and so I think what I worry about is, yes, let's, let's find who we can trust but in order to know who we can trust, we need to have a transparent conversation as a community about it, right? And, and to know how it gets developed. So I, I'm going to give you a last word because we're going to have to wrap in just a minute. And I, I'd love to know what you think we need to ensure your vision of the future. So I'll speak for myself. Two things. I think we need transparency of where the data is coming from. Yeah. And so um, I'm less concerned with transparency about the model because, frankly, I'm pessimistic that anybody can actually un fully understand the model. But, <laughs> but knowing, knowing where the data is coming from is no enormously relevant to what my expectations are about how much it is um, uh, going to be accurate and representing the populations that we're going to be using it upon. That's number one. Number two is back to the steering or alignment. I think it's crucial. You know, people worry a lot about hallucination and error. I think that's very legitimate. I'm much more worried about whose utility is it maximizing. Yes. That is the small rudder changes that will, I think, have huge population impact. And, you know, you could imagine that certain individuals or organizations will align it so that we have... X percent more of this or that with billion dollar consequences. So I think that having absolute clarity, explicit clarity on the, on the alignment procedure and making clear who is aligned to and hopefully regulatorily requiring that the alignment is for the patient, but at least, very least, making clear whose utilities are aligned. Because again, as a society, we've sometimes said public health utilities trump uh, individual utilities. Sometimes we say that, and you know, you have to take the risk of this vaccine in order to have uh, herd uh, immunity. We've said that sometimes, and at least 
it's explicit. Um, right. And what, by, by the fear is that we're the issue of the, what utilities are being maximized, that has to be made explicit. And it's not right, right now. And Carrie, what about you? So I would say, first of all, one thing we talk about in the book is that this is a technological phase change. This is only the beginning. And so whatever we're thinking or talking about now, we need to understand that it's going to change. It's going to change dramatically going forward. I like uh, the idea that people are talking about that we need an AI agency in the United States that understands the technology and can think deeply about the societal consequences. And then from the basic patient point of view, I can tell you that as we were writing the book, Zach and Peter got access first, and it took a while for me to get the access that they had. And my feeling at the time was, just give it to me. Like, I understand that it has imperfections. I understand that yeah. I can't trust it. But this is an absolutely mind-boggling development, and I want to be empowered to use it in ways that can enhance my own health. And so I just hope that whatever regulation comes, and I'm sure there will be some, it must not take away patient access to this tool, even though we can't trust it, right? So it's it's a funny contrast, but but basically I'm just saying like, let me keep my, you can, you'll take my A out of, I, I out of my cold dead hands because, <laughs> it, because it, it really is, it really is very useful. And, and, very surprisingly, it has an amazing bedside manner. Like, it's fantastic in terms of explaining at the level that you need, answering right. every single question. And I have no doubt that the accuracy will improve and improve. So from the patient point of view, you know, maximal access, even as it is improved, and I hope tested incredibly extensively so we can figure out how to make it the best it can be. Yeah. Well, I love a conversation that I hate to leave. <laughs> like those are absolutely the best ones. And I wish we could go on all afternoon because I have so many more questions. But Zach Kohani and Carrie Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I can't wait to see where we end up with this. <laughs> Same, Wendy, and you're welcome. Thank you. So. Kimmy, I'm dying to know what you thought about this, because what kept going through my head as I was talking with them was this generative AI picture of an equestrian that had the horse's legs going in 12 different directions and a weird face on the equestrian themselves. And it just made me think, I know that this technology is moving really fast and doing amazing things, but I also wonder where it might go wrong and whether we're going to recognize it. Absolutely. And what I was thinking about as as the episode was going on, I thought that uh, the generative, the AI equestrian example is funny, right? It's funny. It's a horse that looks funny and it has a funny face. Uh, and there is no consequence to that. And then I would think about, okay, so bringing this technology into a space where errors, you know, can, can, uh, you know, be a matter of life and death, how are we thinking about this differently? How are we considering our adoption of the technology differently? And are we taking the proper precautions in launching AI into healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I take Dr. Kohane's point that it did some amazing things 
when he played with it initially and found that rare disease that maybe he wouldn't have found otherwise. But it's, it's, I think we're still struggling with knowing where is it useful and where do we have to be careful? And then also who has to be careful? Who does that really fall to? Whose responsibility is it to make sure that AI is getting it right? Absolutely. We are talking about that partnership between Microsoft and Epic, right? That Microsoft is providing the AI technology. Epic obviously has the electronic health record. So when mistakes are made, who is responsible? I think that that is a really important question um, that I'm not so sure that we have the answer to at this point. Um, what I would want to make sure of is that it's not the individual doctors themselves who are responsible for mistakes made you know, by, by this AI, but that's part of the concern that I have, that a lot of this checking that has to be done is going to fall to individuals who are, as we know, already overburdened, overloaded, have too many things to do. And yet who are desperate for help. And so if AI might be the help, wouldn't it be great to use it? So promising technology, but... And, you know, I, I appreciated what they were talking about in terms of how AI could actually help doctors spend more time with their patients and help doctors, you know, have more of that face-to-face -face connection. Something I hear from folks so often is the, the experience of disconnect that they have when their, their doctor is on the computer while they're talking to them and looking at the computer and kind of listening to them um, in a sideways kind of manner. If AI could help in that way to allow the doctor and the patient to have, uh, you know, that close personal connection again, that would be huge. Right. I agree. Well, th I think what we're both saying here is really interesting technology that it has tremendous promise, but also let's be careful how we roll it out. Absolutely. Like I can use ChatGPT to write a letter to my landlord, but I'm not so sure I want my doctor <laughs> using it to diagnose my condition. You're right. Landlords look out. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work that we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well. <laughs>